0: You're listening to How to Succeed in Evil, Crazy Psycho Murder Tree, Chapter Two, A Professor of Privilege. Professor Gerlock cinched his ratty coat tight against the November wind. He was too old to break into a run, but every fiber of his being wanted to flee. For over 30 years, he had taught the Intro to Medieval Literature course at Trinity University. Some might have grown tired of returning to the same works year after year. But especially in Chaucer, the old professor felt like a miner who had discovered a vein of rich ore. Each time he had trudged down to the drift, pickaxe on shoulder, lantern on helmet, he had felt the old thrill of seeing the gold shimmering in the darkness. And to share that rich treasure with the generations who followed, he felt that he had been given the privilege of bequeathing riches for a living. To be sure, many students had been bored by his class, but over the years, enough had come to life that he could still regard teaching as a sublime experience. Until tonight What had happened? How had the world changed so much around him And he had failed to notice until now? He had assigned the wife of Bath's tale A story that had only seemed more and more appropriate to the changing times Of course, given the times, he had expected a lively discussion So, at the next class, he had simply opened it up for comment Hoping that things would take their course We didn't read it said a particularly aggressive girl with purple hair who had, for this class, moved from her usual seat in the back to one in the front row. I'm sorry that you didn't have to... No, said Pernicia. We didn't read it. None of us read it. We stopped at the rape. Excuse me, how, how do you mean? Gerlach had asked, scanning the room for an answer or a face more sympathetic or even one with fewer piercings. But none of the other students would meet his eye. We refuse to have your violation of literature perpetrated upon us. Violation? I, I don't, don't understand. I mean, aren't you being a little silly? After all, it's a fiction, and as such, no actual crime has taken. At this statement, several of the students had screamed in incoherent fury. Later, walking in the darkness, he had recalled the words of one of his favorite professors— Great works of literature read us more deeply than we read them. But then, Gerlach worried, was everything, in the end, reduced to some kind of a Rorschach test, unable to inspire, uplift, or even stem the inevitable decline? He wondered if this wasn't some kind of collective hysteria, like what had overcome young girls in the earliest days of rock and roll, or any of the countless religious manias, or that Dutch madness over the tulips. But now, having fled his own classroom, he was forced to admit the possibility that it was something altogether more serious. When the first round of screaming had died down, Pernicia said, You're apologizing for it. I'm hardly apologizing for rape. I'm attempting to Mansplaining! You're trying to colonize our minds! I'm attempting to present the the work of one of the first great poets in the English language. He rapes a girl, and then they let him off. How can you justify that? I'm not trying to justify anything. If I have anything to impart in this whole class, it's that a great work of art, in some sense, need make no justification for itself. It is what it is because it is echoed in the works that have its rape. "'You're hardly offering a nuanced reading of the—' "'I stopped after the rape,' she snapped, her eyes as hot as coals. "'It triggered me.' "'And with this she grew quiet. "'After a pause, Professor Grilock said, "'I'm very sorry for your trouble, but for—' per- "'There's no perhaps. You're in it with him. "'Perpetuating a fallow, logocentric, "'you and Chaucer are just covering up a vast conspiracy of rape culture.' Well, that's one opinion, said Gerlach. Perhaps someone else, someone who's actually read the I will not be marginalized, she screamed, getting up and moving towards him aggressively. Professor Gerlach flinched at her sudden and unexpected fury. You have no right, she screamed. And then, any time he attempted to speak, she screamed louder and louder. The elderly Professor Gerlach looked imploringly to the rest of the class, hoping that someone, anyone, might come to his aid. But what he saw there were a few faces of dull indifference, and the majority of them contorted in a sympathetic rage or disgust. So he had clutched his bag and coat to his chest and fled into the night. As he did, Pernicia screamed after him, "'Run away, old white man! Soon you'll join the dead white men you love!' Now he was nearly halfway across the campus. Trinity College was divided into North and South Campus by what had been a river when the city had been young. Now it was just a gash in the earth, the dry scar left where the river had once been. It was overgrown and slowly filling with the trash of students who had no thought for the future and less care for the past. Bridges were the only way across. The largest, the Baker Bridge, was an elegant structure in the middle of campus. On most evenings, its graceful arch reminded him of Paris. A city ought to have a river to be truly beautiful, he thought. And it seemed a shame that Third City had diverted their only river into underground tunnels long ago, as if the spirit of the place had been interred. But the bridge remained, and it had never failed to make him happy. But tonight, as he came into the open square, he saw that the bridge was blocked by ominous figures in the darkness. As he grew closer to the bridge, the jeers started. "'Walk around! The bridge is closed! Your privilege and power is no good here!' They turned him away. They couldn't seem to agree on a reason, but the old professor gathered that he was not welcome because he was privileged. "'Privileged?' wondered Gerlach. "'He certainly didn't feel privileged. A small, unrecognized professor in a dying sub-department of the Humanities.' He had never had any money or power. No one had ever offered to sleep with him in return for a passing grade. Indeed, hardly anyone could be found to take his courses. The old professor had never wanted any of that. He had not fit in the world in any conventional sense. He wanted no part of its practical wrongs, so he retreated into books, into the most perfect world of the mind and eternal ideas. God in his heaven and Gerlach in his library. The last monk, as betimes he thought himself. But today that was denied to him by this... this incoherently vindictive rabble. I'd like the privilege of using this bridge, Gerlach said softly, turning away in defeat. They did not hear him, and did not care to hear anything he had to say. In that moment he wished that he had the courage of earlier days, the kind of courage that allowed the heroes of the sagas to fight monsters. He wished in all absurdity, that this might be a battle, and that he might, by charging, by dying, gain admittance to the halls of Valhalla. But he did not charge, for he was old and made weak-hammed coward by the weight of the years. He tried to tell himself that they weren't monsters, but when he turned, their cheers were to him as the hissing roar of a basilisk, or the cry of a troll mother, come for revenge for a dying son. And then a decidedly modern author had leapt to mind. It was something that Borges had written. One broke out in a bitter cackle, half gargle, half whistle. From that moment on, things changed. Suddenly we felt that they were playing their last card. We drew our heavy revolvers and joyously put the gods to death. On the edge of the square he saw two men in the darkness, standing near a tree trunk. They wore suits, and one talked quietly into a radio. In spite of their expensive attire, they were strong, brutish-looking fellows, with a military air about them, and they looked on the proceedings with professional detachment. Somehow, Gerlock knew better than to protest his treatment, but he couldn't resist asking, "'What is this? What is going on?' "'The election was tonight. Have you been living under a rock?' one of the dark suits asked. "'No,' said the professor." inside a book the man smiled mechanically and said best to get home sir dumb kids make mistakes and you're not going to want to be here when this is dispersed the other man nodded assent and then shrugged as if to say I didn't start this bullshit mister I just work here damn them thought the old man damn them all they're nothing but small bullies who want to be big and then came the most dangerous thought I'll show them. And with that, he turned and walked back towards the ravine. When he got to the railing, he set his bag down on the sidewalk, tucked his reading glasses more firmly into his jacket pocket, stepped over the railing, and began to climb down. As he descended, a hush fell over the crowd on the bridge. Even before he slipped, he knew he must look the fool, but so be it he would emerge on the other side of the ravine and wear his filthy tweeds as a badge of honor. It only took him fifteen feet to realize the foolishness of his choice. The trash-strewn thorns funneled him to steeper, rockier places, and then he slid, crabwise, to the edge of the cliff. In fear, he scrabbled backwards, the protest of aged tendons and arthritic joints overridden by the sheer tear of death. The small of his back slammed into the rock of the ravine and he cried out in pain. Above him, most jeered while a few gasped. The professor struggled to his belly and clung to the rock and dirt and scrub grass and cigarette butts and chewing gum as if they were life itself. For a moment he feared he might die of a heart attack, but when his heart slowed and his blood pressure came down, he tried to climb. His feet could find no purchase and there was no grip for his hands. He latched onto a small shrub and wrenched it from the ground. Beached like a whale, he thought. He relaxed and lay his head on the earth, then slipped backwards more. Ah, he cried, biting the sound off. Vanity, all is vanity, even in the face of death. He'd be damned if he'd cry out for help. His cheeks flushed with embarrassment. He blinked back hot tears of anger and shame. He vowed he would not give up. "'then he slipped again. "'Now the buckle of his belt hung on a spur of rock "'and cut into his stomach. "'His spindly legs flailed in tear, "'but even as he felt the buckle grind and slip, "'he mastered his terror and compressed it into a fit of trembling. "'Above him he heard a popping noise, and then another, "'and then many of them, "'as if someone was opening cases of champagne. "'He imagined them celebrating his plight, "'but he dared not turn to confirm this absurd fantasy.' Help, he said No louder than if he was changing the subject at a cocktail party Did they even have those anymore? What an absurd thing to do To die wondering about cocktail parties Help, Help, he cried Help But there was no answer Above him, clouds of tear gas enveloped the bridge As men in insectile black body armor with riot shields dispersed the protesters In the chaos, no one heard his cries "'Unobserved and unmourned, he fell into the darkness. "'But he did not hit the ground. "'He crashed through the undergrowth, "'and his fall was arrested just short of the dry riverbed "'by vines and brush. "'Hanging upside down, trying to recover himself, "'he watched a tear-gas grenade bounce into the ravine "'and disappear, hissing in the darkness. "'He realized that it was not completely dark here at the bottom. "'A strange green glow suffused everything.' He looked down and realized that he was hanging inches above a pool of glowing green liquid. A drop of blood dripped off his forehead and spattered on the surface of the pool. The droplet hissed and smoked as it sank into the glowing green goo. As he felt the vines that held him breaking loose, he thought, "'What an absurd ending. Meaningless and brutal. No hope of heroism or redemption. Was this the way he was to die?' We drew our heavy revolvers and joyfully slew the gods. The plants lowered him into the pool of glowing green ooze. He saw his own battered face in the scant reflection and wondered, What horrible modern plot is this? Why could he not have died of a heart attack and just have been done with it? And with that, the pool of goo sucked him in and ceased to glow. If you like How to Succeed in Evil, you should support it by becoming a paid subscriber at patrickemaclean.substack.com. And if you do, I mean, for the paltry sum of $5 a month, you get to binge the rest of this story right now. I mean, that's a good deal, right? You not only get to satisfy your need for instant gratification, but you get to do so in a way that lets you feel good about yourself while you're doing it so if you want to wait a week to get the next episode that's fine it'll be here right on schedule but is it the most evil thing in the world to suggest that in these trying times you deserve a little happiness it's actually fairly evil this is marketing but you should still subscribe